Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with Australia's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not in Print. Rosalind Odes is well known for her pioneering work in the field of headphone verbatim and audio-driven performance, taking real life and fusing it into storytelling. As an artist, Rosalind harbours a long-term fascination with vocal patterns and moonlights as a well-known cartoon character voice performer, including major roles on the animated TV series Tracy McBean, Bananas in Pyjamas and Zigbee. She has also worked extensively as a TV actor and puppeteer, the play we're here to talk about today, Stories of Love and Hate, was made in response to an infamous local incident, tracing the lives and loves of the passionate people who were there. Stories of Love and Hate explores great loves, broken hearts, and the fragile bonds that hold our society together. At times funny, bizarre, and confronting, cultures and ideologies collide in this intimate and innately Australian exploration of love and loss. Drawing on an infamous local incident, the 2005 Cronulla Riots, which attracted worldwide attention for all the wrong reasons, Stories of Love and Hate considers the idea of hate being a consequence of feeling that the things we love are under threat. The result is a collection of interlinking personal stories told with affection, integrity and humour. Rosalind, welcome to Not In Print. Thank you. I wanted to start by quoting from The Complexity of Courage, which is Caroline Wake's introduction to your collection of mm-hmm. plays called Acts of Courage. She says that the Cronulla riots involved around 5,000 people assembling on the beach in order to, quote, reclaim it from an ill-defined and largely imaginary enemy, i.e. the Arab and or Muslim other, the preeminent folk devil of our time, and she uses no uncertain terms when she describes them as a violent attack by members of a dominant ethnic group against a minority in order to put them back in their place. That's one take on things. Many people would agree with that, but I guess because Stories of Love and Hate, the play we're talking about today, takes such a a broad view of the riots, looking at the stories of the people who were there and illuminating complexities that we really didn't get from the media, I wanted to start with a broad view of the riots themselves for those who aren't or may not be uh, aware of exactly what happened. Can you tell us about the days that led up to the 11th of December and some of the events that happened that brought these riots on? What, What happened? Well, from, I guess, the media's point of view and the world point of view, because this story was splashed around the world quite sensationally, much to the embarrassment of Australia at the time. Um, So I guess one of the the kind of pinnacle events was on the 4th of December, a group of volunteer lifesavers had an altercation with a a group of young Lebanese-Australian men, um, which ended up in a little fight and this turned into a headline in the news. Um, It was reported that, you know, some Middle Eastern Australians, Australians of Middle Eastern appearance had bashed some lifesavers who, you know, are iconic heroes Mm. in Australian culture. And, you know, this this was kind of became a sensational headline. And I think they'd been building tension, speaking to people in the area, they'd been building tension among 
you know, intercultural tension among the local Anglo-Australian surf culture and these perceived Lebanese-Australians coming from Bankstown. This has been an ongoing kind of tension because Cronulla is the only beach in Sydney that's accessible by train. It's, it's the closest beach for people coming from southwest Sydney. So there were territorial issues at play. But this event with the heroic lifeguards caused, uh, caused quite a sensation. And within... Um, you know, within a week, there was a text message going around saying, everyone from the Shire, come down to Cronulla Beach on Sunday for a Lebanese and wog bashing day. Let's reclaim the beach. Something along those lines was mm. this text message. And this spread like wildfire. It was quite a unique, perfect storm. Um, and they turned up at about 8 o'clock on the morning of the 11th of December with alcohol. Yes, yes. So this this text message actually got reprinted in our major newspapers in Sydney and also um, a shock jock promoted it as well. So it was sort of became advertised by the media. And so, yeah, from 8am in the morning, thousands of Anglo-Australians came dressed very nationalistic, you know, with these um, Australian flags draped around them. And yeah, 5,000 people gathered and were chanting things like, fuck off lebs. Um, waltzing Matilda, like it was a very interesting... We grew here, you flew Yeah, here. yeah, there was a lot of kind of slogans, quite horrific slogans going around. And, you know, people were drinking a lot and by the middle of the day, acts of violence started to erupt. Anyone who was in the area of Middle Eastern appearance, in inverted commas, was kind of harassed to, and then a little acts of violence broke out. And I guess the pinnacle of, you know, the violence, a train pulled into Cronulla Station and, and this rumour spread through the crowd like wildfire that there's a train load of Lebanese coming to the station. Everyone, you know, get down there. Hordes of people, you know, rushed this train of which there was two very scared young men of Middle Eastern appearance who just were terrified for their lives when heaps of people started crowding onto this train and started to beat up these two boys. And there's some horrific photographs taken by Craig Greenhill, who won a Walkley Award for his photos of these young men, you know, cowering as they're being kicked and cans are being thrown at them. The whole day was just set to explode. Yeah, if you're turning yeah. up at eight o'clock in the morning with that much kind of virulent anger just right. waiting to be unleashed upon people and That's drinking, right. it was such a an intense period and so shocking as well and I, I really want us to talk in much greater detail about the complexity of it because all we did really get from the media was very polarized um, opinions from people if we were listening to shock jocks hopefully no one was listening to shock jocks who's listening <laughs> to this uh, but you know if we were reading the the papers the, the places that you would kind of naturally go to try and find some kind of nuanced reporting we didn't really get a lot of that to begin with. It wasn't until much later that we started to see that. Yes. Now, you've been quoted as saying that in the aftermath of the riots, you, you found it difficult to get a real sense of what had actually happened because there were so many conflicting stories. And so you set about finding the real people behind the stereotypes, these people that were labelled as racist rednecks or Lebanese thugs. Mm. And over two years, you interviewed more than 60 people aged between 14 and 79. Tell me what you found out from these people that wasn't reported on anywhere else? Yeah, well, that's right. My line of inquiry was, um, you know, I really wanted to find the real people behind this incident because I felt like the media was really projecting these stereotypes. And I actually um, grew up in Bankstown, so I was in a great position to really um, 
kind of look a bit deeper. And also my first boyfriend had been a surfer at Cronulla. So I, I felt like, oh, you know, this is really, how, how did this happen? You know, like these are two areas that, I mean, obviously I identify with Bankstown more because that's where I grew up. But, you know, Cronulla is a beautiful beach and, you know, I know beautiful people in both these areas. You know, how did this happen? Like who were these people? Where, where did all these, you know, angry, awful racists come from? I felt like after the riots happened, the rest of Sydney was really embarrassed uh, and the rest of Australia. Like there was a real sense of embarrassment and a real kind of scapegoating of the people that were there that day. So I really wanted to get underneath that. And I think the thing I found was that the people that were involved in the day and everyone in the show who went, whose story ended up in the show was directly linked to that day. And what I found was that they were really ordinary people. And what I hoped to explore in the show was I wanted the audience to see themselves in those people and to own that story and, and that mess and those complexities of Australian culture rather than scapegoat them off like the media had. And in my work, I use a particular form which I call headphone verbatim theatre, which actually preserves the vocal print of the original speaker that I've interviewed in that my actors wear headphones and and speak along with absolute precision to what they're hearing. And, you know, I I feel like um, in a way this work is mapping the Australian voice at a particular point in time. Um, Yeah, and I'm I'm really really interested in that in in almost an anthropological way. Mm. And you mentioned headphone verbatim there, and I wanted to talk to you about verbatim theatre and headphone verbatim specifically. Uh, But before we look at that and why it appeals to you and why it was perfect for for this story as well that you're telling in, in Stories of Love and Hate, can you explain what headphone verbatim is exactly and how it works in production? So headphone verbatim is a form of verbatim theatre where... My process is I go out and record interviews or field recordings in the community. I come back to my studio, I edit in an audio program, and the finished script is actually an audio script. It's a paperless form of theatre. I give the actors an iPod, which has these carefully crafted um, audio materials um, which go for around, you know, for the length of the plays. And then for the entire rehearsals and also in performance, the actors are wearing headphones and they're speaking along as precisely as possible to what they hear. So it's almost like they're channeling in performance. It feels like they're channeling the the real words and, and almost the spirit of of the original interviewees. And looking at this as oral history, which uh, from what we've just been discussing, the implication is really that this is a historical document. Actually, as well as a play, as well as a story, you've constructed mm-hmm. it into a narrative. Looking at it that way, is is that why it's so important that the actors actually maintain the rhythm and intonation of speech, that vocal fingerprint of the people that they're, they're listening to so that it doesn't then become a fiction? Yeah, I'm really, you know, I take the responsibility of being given someone's story very seriously. So for me, I feel like this way of working... Um, it keeps the integrity of the voice in that I, I can sincerely say to the community member who, who I've interviewed, we are going to put on stage your words as you said them. I'm not asking actors to pretend they're you. I'm just asking them to say what you said as you said it. And, and that then gives me the freedom as an artist to play with the context. And in my work, I'm very interested in, in notions of mismatch. Like what happens if I give the words of an 88-year-old for an 18-year-old to speak 
or what happens if I give the words in the case of stories of love and hate of you know an Anglo-Australian surfer to you know a young actor of Middle Eastern appearance like I think you know if you can preserve the authenticity of the voice but then mismatch the body then um, the work gently raises questions around who's allowed to say what in Australia um, you know which in the case of stories of love and hate is you know quite a potent question mm, and you were saying there as well that you actually uh, feel like the the stories that are being told won't be misrepresented because they are maintaining the rhythm and intonation that vocal print and that was actually one of the ways that you reassured people in both Cronulla and Bankstown when you were talking to them about their stories going on stage you, you made it clear that, like you said, you weren't going to misrepresent them. I did want to ask you a question about that, just because you had to make choices as an artist about which stories you'd include and which you wouldn't, and you spoke to about 60 people but only included about 30-odd characters, so there's a range Mm. of people that didn't make it into the show. How did you make choices about what you included and what you didn't include? How did you shape this? Yeah, that's a very good question because, you know, I I ended up with around 80 hours worth of audio and obviously... Um, you know, my process involves having to cut that down to around an hour. So obviously I'm making a lot of creative choices about what I think needs to be in there and what that adds up to. Um, Yeah, so although, you know, I'm doing all those things of maintaining the authenticity of the voice, I'm also creating a new work, which is, you know, counterpointing and juxtapositioning various bits of material. Like, for example, there's a point in the play where you hear some, you know, young Australian-Lebanese men talking about, you know, they like to go down to the beach in a group and it's great fun and they eat their McDonald's and, you know, they paint this great picture about beach being at the beach and then the next um, section straight after that is is you know the group of surfers talking about you know they always come down here and leave their mcdonald's on the street so you, you can place words directly after each other so that pieces start talking to each other and i think in the case of the cronulla riots it is a shared story so i was trying to make this kind of shared story where the voices of, of lots of different community members contribute to the same story so you keep shifting your lens on the same on the same event And to make it digestible and approachable for an audience as well, you obviously have to shape it into something that they can see and and understand without necessarily having a a complete understanding of the event that you're talking about at the centre of this. How did you maintain that and make sure that an audience would be able to hear what these people were saying and relate it back and, and really digest yes. it. Well, that was of utmost importance to me because I was trying to make a work in in response to the media reporting. So I wanted to make a work that was really accessible and I wanted to make a work where the audience saw themselves, which is why, I, you know, this idea of stories of love and hate, I was, you know, proposing the question, you know, does, does every war have a, a love story at its heart? So you meet all the characters in stories of love and hate through you know, they're involved in and, and talking about something they're really passionate about and they love. And everyone is beautiful when they're talking about what they love. We can, you know, we can we can relate to that person because they're, they're revealing something really precious and something they really care about and something that's really productive and, you know, fun. Um, so with all the characters, you're offered, um, you know, you're offered a doorway into their lives. Um, and the, I've really tried to get these recordings where the people I'm interviewing forget I'm there. For example, I, you know, I hang out in a car with, with some boys, they love their car and they sort of figured I'm there and they're putting on their music. And, you know, with the surfers as well, I hung out at their flat and when they're all just coming back from surfing and listening to Bob Marley and smoking joints, you know, I, I really immersed myself in those environments so that the audience gets this sense that they're eavesdropping on these tribes, not just talking to 
to me, not being interviewed so much as forgetting I'm there and talking to each other. So, you know, I really wanted the audience to feel like they were in the room and they were part of these tribes for a little while. Mm. You know, so even if you'd never been to Cronulla and you didn't know anyone from Bankstown, you could come here and, and be part of their conversation for an hour and actually break down the stereotype. So by the end, you've met these people that are really charming and funny and you laugh with them, but then through the course of the play, you're drawn into this awful, ugly event. And then the play doesn't stop there. It then takes you through how does how do communities pick up the pieces and move on. Mm. Yeah, so I feel like you, you end up, you can't help but participate in quite a complicated journey and you can't help but see yourself in the work. Did you find the stories that you expected from both communities or were you surprised? I suppose one of the surprising things that came up time and again with young men, and in a way this play is the story of tribes of young men, was how far they would go for the thing they loved and how far they would go to protect their pride. The surprising thing was how similar the tribes from both sides of the war were. For example, the young men from Cronulla aligned themselves with Gallipoli. They were like, you know, now I know what it would feel like to be, a, you know, a digger, this kind of language. And it, and also, you know, the, the young Lebanese-Australian men from Bankstown aligning themselves with the Lebanese war. You know, it was like the Lebanese war. You know, I actually have that on tape, those two really direct references. So, you know, it was really interesting, the work to weave those things together. But time and time and again, young men told me they were willing to die for their pride. What did the people in Cronulla tell you about that day how, how did they feel about people actually coming to their suburb from other places in Sydney and using their suburb as the centre point of this this war yeah. that they wanted to rage, this crazy, ridiculous, racist war? Yeah. I mean, I think they definitely all felt scapegoated and misrepresented. I, I think that was very common amongst all the people I spoke to. They, they all reported that there were people coming from all over Sydney. People came from as far as Canberra and, you know, up and down the coast. So there were people from everywhere gathering here because, you know, in this text message, as we discussed earlier, had been publicised by the Sydney Morning Herald and the, and the Daily Telegraph and on radio. So everyone knew about it. And, and I think public opinion, like people were kind of going, hmm, you know, bashing up lifeguards. I mean, that's the way that story was told. I'm sure there was another side to that story as well. But like, it's interesting, this rhetoric of fear of the other kind of uh, one stage public opinion was all, oh, yeah, this is questionable behavior. But once it happened, everyone was like, oh, it was those Cronulla people. Mm. Um uh, yeah, and I think there there is something in that, and and I guess that was part of what I was I was interested in talking about is you know we need to own this as a cultural it's something that happened. It, it was fed by the cultural conditions, um, and we're all responsible for that, and we all partake in that. And I think that was something that was really disappointing about the reportage of it, and I I do think it was unfair on the people in the Shire, that mm. they got logged as a, it was you, it was you guys. <laughs> Not that they're to say that people in the Shire were, weren't blameless. Right. Um, but I think it's a bigger, it was an Australian issue, that, um, not just a Cronulla issue. I wanted to talk to you about a um, something really interesting, again, from Caroline Wake's introduction to Acts of Courage, 
where she highlights the divisions that you uncovered within communities, which kind of relates to what we were just talking about. She notes that uh, one character is careful to point out that Punchbowl is no Mount Druitt, and uh, three young Lebanese men jokingly refer to their ghetto and then debate whether or not they are Lebanese, Wogs, Middle Easterns, Middle Eastern Australian, or Middle Eastern Wogs. Likewise, the Cronulla surfers are dismissive of those who have the uh, the tattoos of the Southern Cross, the constellation that dominates Australia's sky and flag, which they say means nothing. And then when the discussion finally moves to the day of the riot, the surfers insist that, yeah, there were hardly any locals at the scene, as you were just saying, they'd, they'd said to you, that it was mainly uh, roo shooters or romper stompers, which is a reference to the Russell Crowe movie in which he plays a neo-Nazi. What do these divisions, do you think, anyway, tell us about prejudice? Well, I think a lot. Yeah, I think it all ties into the stereotyping. And, you know, the people I met were trying to go, whoa, wait a second, we're not that person. And we're not, you don't necessarily, um, we don't all like the Southern Cross tattoo. And it's, it's a much more complicated dynamic. You can't just simplify them and put them in boxes. And but it was really- these people were pushing it on to other people, it seems like. Yeah, I, I yeah, don't want to call it yeah. passing the buck, but I'm just really <laughs> curious about um, this fear that everyone has of being labelled a certain thing, but then everyone not actually admitting or, like you were saying, taking responsibility for that thing. Are we all just, like, passing things along down the line and pretending it's not us so I don't have to deal with it? Yeah, I think there was definitely a lot of that post the riots. There was a lot of, yeah, people, yeah, pushing it around and um, rejecting it as as the fault of um, their suburb or their area. But it was really interesting to map that in the language as well, like talking to um, one of the the young girls from the shy who did happen to have a um, Southern Cross tattoo. When she was talking about the riots, she kept avoiding saying the word Lebanese, but she really wanted to say it. So often my interviews weren't like, so what happened at Cronulla? And they would say, oh, you know, people have been coming here. For years, people have been coming here. It's like, what people? Oh, you know, these people from over there. From where? You know, Western suburbs people. Okay, who were these people from the Western suburbs? Like, what? What? You know, why were they coming here? What were they? You know, who? Who are they? Oh, you know, these. Um. Oh, you know. People of Middle Eastern appearance. Like, it take like five questions to get to you know what they were trying to say because there was this real hesitation around even having the conversation after the riots. I remember people using the word L word instead of saying Lebanese. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, it was quite strange. And also um, just to make a comparison from the other side of the argument, talking to young men from West Southwest Sydney who were of Middle Eastern appearance, to quote the media term. And it was interesting that that, that little quote you brought out, like them struggling to, with how to, what to call themselves. Are we Middle Eastern Australians? Are we, you know, but they're all Australians. They're all born here. But it was interesting also how many young men um, who were feeling um, like they were outsiders and, you know, not... Um, were being rejected by Australian mainstream culture, you know, calling themselves Lebanese when their origin wasn't even from Lebanon. They were from other countries that, or their heritage was from other countries, um, but they were calling themselves Lebanese because they had a gangster feel suddenly and they wanted to, you know, if I'm going to be rejected, then I want to be a gangster, so I'm going to call myself Lebanese. So a lot of people were calling themselves Lebanese that weren't actually of Lebanese heritage. So that that was really interesting as well, that semantics that were... Um, being passed around. Such curious splintering as yeah. well. 
when I was reading this, I unfortunately didn't get to see it in production. Uh, the love that we see is full of surprises. It confounds and delights. It kind of it pops up in really unexpected places, and it can't be reduced to a single definition. So it's you know as as it is in life, really. It's really complicated. Yeah, and what I really appreciated as well is that there's such a, a broad scope of takes on love and types of love we have for example uh the surfers who think that being in the barrel of a wave is not far off the feeling of having sex but then one of them also (laughs) says that it's kind of like being back in the fallopian tube again so it's it's orgasmic but it can also be like you're being reincarnated like born again in a way you know which which are both kinds of like spiritual yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. or you know like the uh the guys with their cars and they spend you know like thousands of dollars on these things they like they prefer to have an F1 racer car than marry a beautiful woman and live with her for the rest of their life. You know, these mm. kinds of love, obsession, I mean, both go kind of hand in hand. And I just wanted to talk to you about how love turns into hate and is obsession or is kind of infatuation or fixation or any of those things a kind of a byway to lead you towards hate i know that you've said before that love can actually turn into hate quite quite easily and i just wanted you to explain that because it was very interesting your take on it yeah well I, I yeah i'm very interested in passionate people like and everyone that's in the show i found very likable like there was a lot of people i didn't like and they're not in the show but yeah i, I just think to burn that brightly for something is quite attractive and even courageous sometimes to just really commit yourself to something. But yeah, I, I guess when love turns ugly is when you're, you know, protecting the thing you love. And I think a lot of that is what was behind the passions that drove people to a- attend the riots is they felt like they were protecting their own or they're protecting their beach, their their lifestyle. And, and I think likewise, the, the, the young people that were, um, that were, explaining their perspective from um, southwest Sydney, you know, they were protecting their rights to be Australians. Um, and, and the flag was kind of held up as a kind of a, a weapon or a reminder at the Cronulla riots that you're not one of us. We're reminding you, you know, you go back to where you're from. This is our place and our flag. And it was very, you know, it was quite clearly an um, Anglo-Australian assertion of nationalism, which was shocking. Shocking to see, you know, and we also have the whole complexity of it not, you know, being a flag that excludes the Indigenous population. Like right. it's a quite a contentious flag already. So mm. to see it being held up like that was um, extremely ugly. Mm. You really didn't shy away from the issue of hate, though, even though you've said that you focused primarily on love and most of the things that you talked to uh, the interviewees about was what they loved. Mm-hmm. Um, scene 26, a monologue from Craig Greenhill, who you mentioned earlier, a photographer who captured uh, the day's most shocking and visceral image, which won him the Walkley Award, as you mentioned. It's of these enraged and really like barbarous Anglo-Australians attacking this defenceless man mm-hmm. on a train at Cronulla Station. It's actually the story that he tells that upset me even more it hits you like a punch in the guts he's on the sidelines of this hysteria really as this congregation of riled up men kind of unleash their rage and he's he's taking photos of it Mm. of this horror show of violence trying to stop them seeing their faces as they clock him and when they see that he's not a threat they just carry on battering this defenceless man that's now lying at their feet. If it wasn't for Craig Campbell, the policeman who also features in in stories of love and hate, if he hadn't arrived at that very moment, they would have killed this this man. Yes, it would be a very different story, wouldn't it? What did you learn about hate during the development of the work? 
Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, it was really interesting to kind of contemplate or listening to Craig's the photographer's story and also um, the police officers um, that that mob mentality, like yeah, awful. But it's interesting that sometimes being part of a crowd can enable you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And I think there was a lot of kind of kind of bloodlust in that crowd fueled by alcohol. It was really interesting talking to Craig about how his photographs ended up becoming um you know he had to he had to witness in court and the people he photographed ended up being called to account and identified but he said like you know it was a whole mob that wanted to kill these two guys on the train like there was this you know he felt that terror and I and I and it's amazing the way he tells that story and this goes back to my interest in preserving the vocal print because he keeps laughing while he's telling the story in the actual interview it's quite a strange place to laugh but um he actually talks about he actually put the camera down and stopped photographing because he was just felt like he was witnessing uh you know these young boys being killed in front of him in Australia and um I I guess I think we're all capable of it and now that it's been almost 10 years uh, since the Cronulla riots, looking at them from this distance, what, what do you think is the most important lesson that we should try and take from them? Yeah, I feel really hesitant to kind of turn the Cronulla riots into a moral or a lesson because I feel like in this work I've tried to ask people to own the event and, and look at the complexity of it. If, if I were pushed on the subject, I, I would say that... Um, we all participated in that in some way. That was about our culture and our society. It wasn't an event that just happened over there between thugs and racists. It's, um, you know, it brings up questions around um, identity and inclusivity that's part of our culture and something that we, we need to be really aware of and um, mindful of. What have people been saying to you that you've spoken to who have seen the show? Is that is that the effect that it's wow. had? It's been so fascinating. And the premiere season was so fascinating because it was so impossible to bring those two communities together and I felt like well this show needs to be presented to both these communities the Shire and uh, in Bankstown you know the the areas at the heart of the story so we had to do two premieres we had to do a season in both areas because we couldn't bring those communities together that was such a volatile relationship and we we performed the show in the Shire um, which is where Cronulla is uh, in in Sydney first and they thought it represented them very well and um, you know they, they were all really happy with the voices and you know what was being said in the show and the complexities of that but it was so interesting they also just said to me when you take this to Bankstown you're going to get stabbed you know they were worried about me <laughs> so that was so interesting and then when I took it to Bankstown I kind of had the opposite effect you know they thought Bankstown looked really great in the show and Cronulla would have been really offended by the show so that was really interesting it taught me a lot about um you know you think as an artist that you're controlling meaning but the show meant something so different in both places and people laughed in different places and there was kind of stony silences in different places um so it was quite satisfying that the show went on to also be at the Sydney Theatre Company which was kind of a more um you know Sydney-wide audience um yeah, so it, kind of, it was really interesting to, to trace um, what the show meant in those different contexts. Thank you so much for coming in to talk a to pleasure. me today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. 
This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.